Hello and welcome back to our daily devotional podcast. Today we will look at the entire Acts chapter 26. It seems rather long, but it's really just a narrative of Paul talking about the history of how he was converted from a very uh, pious Jew who was persecuting Christians. So let's turn to Acts chapter 26. Let us pray. Father, speak your truth to us once again. Help us, Lord, today to understand you, to know you better, to know your heart, your love, your concern for each of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed in persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord said. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not obedient, disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people 
and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This narrative of, of Paul as he spoke to Agrippa tells us quite a bit about God, the nature of God, and God's response and longing for us. I'd like to bring three points for us to consider and to reflect on. The first point is that God is well aware of the longings of our hearts. God is well aware of the deepest longings of our hearts. What was the deepest longing of the Jews and, by implication, all of us on earth? In verse 7 of this passage, Paul says, This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. It is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? The hope of the Jews and the hope of Christianity in general is that this life is not the end, that there is an eternal life beyond this life. It doesn't mean then that we only look forward to that and then we only behave ourselves then. Eternal life begins here. And yet all of us, the one thing that stands out for Christians is that this life does not end on earth. It continues in heaven and etern into eternity. Now this may seem far removed for many of us. I mean, in the daily uh, dealings, we think more about the problems we face, the interview that we are going to attend, the meeting that we are going to have with our bosses, the profits that we make or a job that we are looking forward to. Or we look at our family and how our children are doing, how our marriage is. We look at very existential things and that is important because life on earth is existential. And yet, there is something more. And that is a longing, a hope that we live beyond this life. Now, as I said, some, often we don't think about it. And yet, if you thought of, thought of a time, a funeral, you may have attended or been involved in the death of a beloved spouse or the death of a parent or very hard to take a death of a child, especially a young child or perhaps the passing of a dear friend. And it is at these times that we are not only reminded of our mortality but there is a yearning, a hope that this is not the final farewell. 
I've done many, many funerals. And one of the things I realize is that at the end of it all, there is this hope that we cling on to. Even as we say farewell, as we say goodbye to our loved one, when we say this is not the end, we will see you again. And we hope to see you again soon. That at these times that hope really springs eternal, that we long that this be true, that there is a resurrection from the dead. Think about it. In these sober times, when somebody dear to us passes on, it's these times that we realise that many things don't matter anymore. Many of these existential issues don't matter. A job doesn't matter. How rich we are doesn't matter. I remember a dear friend of mine, his, his wife, whom he loved so much, died. Before his wife died, he was enjoying his life and having a lot of fun and doing all sorts of things. And yet after the death of his wife, the one thing that he longed for was reunion with his wife. But his whole life changed. He saw his life no longer as a hedonistic one, one where he could enjoy one adventure after another, one form of enjoyment after another. He became very focused on ministry, not because he thought that that would earn him credits, but simply because he said, there is nothing else to look forward to except to serve God and to look forward to being reunited with my wife. It says here that the Jewish people, is this is the promise in verse 7, this is the promise that the Jewish people hope to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. To them, serving God and just living day and night, not in a hedonistic way, but in a purposeful way, was with the hope that they would, there would be a resurrection from the dead. I wonder if this is true too of each of us, that God understands our longing for eternal life. This is what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive were left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then in verse 17 it says, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, with the dead who will rise first. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. God knows that at the bottom of it all, of all our lives, is the hope that this life doesn't just end that there is an eternal life. And it is important for us to think about that too. Second thought that I have is God's attitude towards his opponents. God's attitude against those who hate him and who persecute his people. Paul says in verse, verse 10, On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. 
I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Now, Paul wasn't a simple man who was converted. He was a hater of Jesus. He was a hater of Christians. He wasn't just a non-Christian. He persecuted, he hunted down Christians. When you think about the people who hunt down Christians, people who hate Christians, they're often filled with rage and outrage, and also of fear and anxiety. We hate them because these are people who encroach on us, on our ability to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we fear them because they come after us. This indignation and outreach and fear of people who may hate Christians exists all the time. For example, Islamophobia in the States. Now we may think that's only in the USA, but you know many of us Christians are also affected by, by the things that happen in the USA. During, especially during uh, Obama's time, I received so many emails and WhatsApp messages telling me about how dangerous Muslims were, that the Muslims were encroaching on the faith of the Christians, that they must be defeated, that they would be doing terrible things to Christians, like stopping them from prayer and invading into their territory, the Christians' territory. And so when Trump took over, all of this Islamophobia came to the fore, that Islam was the enemy of Christians. Isn't that very similar to um, to Paul, to Saul and the Jews who hated were the enemies of Christians. And that stoked up a lot of hatred, a lot of fear, a lot of ideas that we want to stop the Muslims from coming near us or bad feeling against them. And then, of course, along the way, there was also the homophobia, stories of how um, Homosexuals would force bakers to bake cakes for their weddings. And again, they filled us with outrage. They filled us with fear. And we want to, and I've heard so often when arguments go that we should stop them before they do such things to us. And I've been asked also the rhetorical question, if you don't stop them, are you sure that they will not do these things to you? How would you like to live in a country when... People force you to do things to celebrate gay marriages. So it brings out a lot, a lot of fear in us. Maybe these fears are justified, maybe they're not. But let's look at how Jesus deals with those who oppose him. First of all, Jesus, the way Jesus dealt with Saul. As Jesus appeared to Saul, could Jesus asked him, verse 14, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Jesus was saying, you can't oppose me. But he said in such a gentle way, he was asking Saul, why do you do these things to me? And then he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet, because I have appointed you as a servant. For what? I'm sending you, in verse 17, to open the eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus was looking at 
the opponents, his opponents, the opponents of Christianity. He's looking at the Jews who are violently violating, killing the Christians. And the th thought in his mind was this, I want them to know the truth that they may be snatched from the hands of Satan and brought to light. What was in God's heart and eyes and mind? It was compassion, it was love. And he chose Saul not to, not to punish him, not to condemn him, not to kill him. But he chose Saul to be a messenger that Saul might bring God's message of forgiveness and of deliverance to the people who opposed him, to lift them from the grips of the devil. God's demeanour towards his opponents was that of love and that of compassion. No doubt they were doing terrible things to his people and Jesus identified with each of them. He said, why are you persecuting me? It was not why are you persecuting my people? For every Christian who was killed, Jesus took it very personally. And yet his response was not one of vengeance and condemnation. His response was that of compassion, of seeing that they were in the grips of the evil one and wanting to lift them out of it. Do we fear those who may persecute us? Do we fear those who may oppose us? Of course, it may be frightening. But just because they may harm us doesn't mean then that we fight them before they even do so, or even we fight them when they do so. But the word, the heart of God, is that first of all, we look at them with compassion as Jesus looks at them with compassion. And we pray and then we ask God, how then do we minister in love? How do we return love to them? Who are the people who oppose us these days? Who are the people who go against Christianity and the Christian way of life? What is our attitude towards them? The third thought that I want to raise is this. What God wants for us is that we return to our first love. What God wants of us is that we return to our first love. You see, it is very ironic in verse 20, when Paul says that I preached to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some of the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. Now, the Jews are God's people. The Jews are the ones who are following God, who are indignant for the name of God, who are outraged by anyone who blasphemes against God. But it's a turn it's an ironic turn that Jesus is saying that these are the ones who need to repent. They may be indignant for me, they may be outraged because they think that my name has been blasphemed, but actually they are the ones who need to repent and to come back to me. It makes me wonder, think about us as Christians too, that often we are fiercely fighting those who oppose us and we are indignant against those who go against the cross. 
I remember often in our talks, we were in school, we often said, wow, the government are really now going against the Christians. The news media, we used to talk about the news media being unfair to Christians and we get very outraged and indignant. And yet even as we fight those who oppose Christianity, this is what God calls us to look at instead. I want to read to you Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 onwards. And this is what Jesus says to the Ephesian church. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Jesus was saying to this church, you have been wonderful, you have stood by me, you have endured persecution, you have called out the false apostles, you have fought with the wicked people. But then he says in verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and remove my lampstand from its place. The church in Ephesus had been a very faithful church. They had done, they had served, they had toiled for God and endured persecution. But the one thing that they lost was their first love, the love for Jesus, which they first had when they came to him. I wonder about us too. We often talk about issues and controversies and we want to serve the Lord. We want to be zealous for God. But the one thing that God longs from us is that we have a tender heart towards him that our love for him will never wane but will grow stronger. That is more important to God than anything else. We may be zealous in serving God, but God looks for a tender heart towards him, for a heart that loves him, that's devoted to him. Let us think about our hearts too. Whatever else we may do for God, do we have tender hearts towards our Lord. And so I leave you with these three thoughts. The first thought is that of eternity. We don't very much think about eternity until someone we love dies and then we long to be reunited in eternity. But along with that, we realise too that many of the things that we treasure here are not important at all. When we think about eternal life, that what we gain, what we possess, what we gather and accumulate on this earth matters less and less because what matters is our longing for eternal life. Second, let's think about God's demeanour and God's attitude towards his enemies and his opponents. While Paul and the Jews were the most wicked of people persecuting the Christians, dragging them out for execution. Jesus did not look at them with hatred. Instead, Jesus held in his heart the longing that these who persecuted him would be lifted out 
from the kingdom of darkness to belong to the devil and be brought to his light? Can we begin to allow the compassion and the love of Christ to come into us as well? No longer do we see enemies of Christ as people we should hate vehemently, but as people whom Jesus loves. And third of all, we think about our attitude towards God. Despite all that we may have done, all we may be doing for God, our indignation against the wicked people, our zeal for God, do we have tender hearts towards God, towards our Lord Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Father, we ask that you speak to us today, reminding us of what's important in life, reminding us of who you are and how you look upon us with compassion, that we may also respond to you as God of love, God who knows our deepest needs and God who desires our love for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well then, hope that many of you will turn up on Sunday. This Sunday, um, Tanti Kun will be preaching. I'm sure you miss him a lot. He used to preach a lot in the previous years. He hasn't done so, or at least I have, hadn't allowed him yet. I, <laughs> sorry, I wanted to take the pulpit for these six months, but... But yes, he'll be coming back and he will also be our regular preacher from now on. And I hope that you'll come and listen to him as well. And we will enjoy Sunday fellowship together as well. Well then, God bless you. Goodbye.